Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen O'Day, and welcome to the Immuno-Oncology Curve, a podcast produced by Agenis. Agenis is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company that discovers and develops immunotherapies for cancer. I'm the company's chief medical officer. I joined Agenis in 2021 after a long career as a medical oncologist focused on the clinical development of immunotherapies. My guests and I aim to keep you ahead of the curve on the latest in immunotherapy. We also share a common goal, which is to lengthen the survival curve for patients with cancer, and a common conviction, which is that immunotherapies are uniquely poised to make such progress happen. Please follow the Immuno-Oncology Curve, a podcast, but more importantly, a path, we believe, to a much better outcome against cancer. This is episode two of the Immuno-Oncology Curve, in which I have the pleasure of hosting three wonderful discussion partners in the same room. No video conferencing required. That's because today is patient day at Agenis headquarters here in Lexington, Massachusetts a special day of awareness for Agenis employees, and our guests of honor agreed to join me on the podcast. Marianne Pearson is an experienced counselor to patients fighting cancer and a licensed social worker. She represents the Colorectal Cancer Alliance with us today, where she is the Senior Director of Patient Navigation. Colorectal Cancer Alliance has an essential three-part mission, to support patients and families, build awareness of preventative measures, and raise funds that support research. Andrew Wartman designs awareness and outreach campaigns to fight colorectal cancer, which is the actual name of the organization he represents. A talented designer by training, Andrew is the Director of Innovative Marketing for Fight Colorectal Cancer, which supports patients' empowerment policy change, and breakthrough research. And Alexa Morell of nearby Chelmsford, Massachusetts, focuses us in a highly personal way on our shared purpose. At age 29, as a new mother, Alexa receives some of the worst news imaginable, a diagnosis of stage four colon cancer that had spread to her liver. Alexa is a fighter and has received excellent care. Thank goodness she is with us today with some key messages about the importance of screening at younger ages and the need for better treatments. Alexa, I want to start with you. Please share your journey and your story, but maybe start by telling us who you are, which is much more than a cancer patient, and then what you have learned about colon and colorectal cancer in young people since your own diagnosis. How rare is this sort of news? What educational message do you feel is important to share more broadly? Sure thing. Thank you for having me. Um, again, my name is Alexa Morell. I am a 33-year-old wife and mother. I am a full-time um, informatics saleswoman. And in my free time, I also do a lot of advocacy work um, for colorectal cancer, um, mostly with Dana-Farber and MGH. So a little bit about my story. Um, like you mentioned, I was diagnosed at 29 as a seemingly perfectly healthy new mom. Uh, the alarming and scary thing was that I had symptoms for two weeks. 
which led to a colonoscopy a week later. And so within three weeks, I went from a normal, healthy young mom to a stage four colorectal cancer patient, essentially overnight. Um, so it, September of 2019 was the beginning of a, a crazy battle. Uh, I started treatment right away with really strong chemo, uh, two liver resections and a colon resection. I finished treatment in May of 2020 and really thought that I had put this whole thing behind me with cancer. Unfortunately, a couple months later, I received news that my scan showed uh, progression and new spread to my right lung. So uh, it was definitely a dagger to the heart, but you know I had to just keep on going. So um, three lung surgeries later in radiation, um, I'm actually doing really well today. Uh, scans this month will show if I'm just under two years clear. Uh, and so really fortunate and I feel very lucky to be in this position um, because it's this cancer is not rare and unfortunately the odds are not always in our favor. So Alexa, the, the cancer community and uh, broadly is lucky to have you and um, we applaud your your good health and and treatment journey. And but talk to us a little bit about what it's like to be 29 and to get a diagnosis that historically has been associated with, with aging and older, older people. Um, and, and obviously we're, we're, we're aware in recent, in the recent decade, but even more in recent years, just how prevalent this younger onset of colorectal cancer is that isn't necessarily genetically, uh, predetermined. So t tell us a little bit about what it's been like to get, you know, get involved in that community and, and help. The sure thing. So when I was diagnosed, I, I was not aware of the, you know, epidemic of how many people are getting diagnosed with colon cancer. I just was like, how did this happen to someone who was healthy and took care of themselves and did all the right things? And, uh, I was really scared because I just, didn't know who I was going to come across to inspire me or share tips and tricks and, you know, kind of pave the path forward of where I would be going. Um, but unfortunately, over the last four plus years, I have learned that this disease is on the rise in people 45 and under, uh, many of us whom don't have any genetic links. Uh, so we're deemed environmental and then, <laughs> you know, go on our way to start treatment. But I think the hard part is it, it leaves a lot of questions of like, how did this happen? Did I do anything? Did my parents give me some type of product or food or, you know, topical cream? Like what caused it? So I think that, um, being so young, I think that's, it's hard because you start to wonder like, did I do this or was it something that, you know, we did to to get it. But of course we know that we can't live like that. Right. <laughs> um, so I fueled my, I kind of used the, the fire inside of me to kind of push forward and, and help, um, you know, share the message that this isn't an old person's disease anymore. Um, there's so many young people being diagnosed with colorectal cancer, um, twenties, thirties, forties. There's even people I know that are much younger in their teens, which is, so alarming. Um, but I think that with the rising, you know, the rising number of people being diagnosed, I think we have to be loud and we have to spread the message, share our story. Um, so I'm an open book because I just want people to know like what to look out for, what signs, um, 
and just how to help themselves like survive something like this. So you shared this morning at our company town hall, just the, the incredible team, medical and, and more expanded team uh, across disciplines um, that has really been uh, cheering you and, and moving you into this uh, 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 successful treatment at, at going forward. So Marianne, you know, you're, you're a patient navigator. This is, this is a, a really critical thing. Alexa obviously has the advantages of a, of a major center of excellence in an academic center that's been sort of orchestrating your care. Even their uh, navigation and coordination can be challenging having worked in, in multiple different medical settings. But there's a big gap between that and community-based models where supportive uh, uh, availabilities are not always there. So talk to us a little bit just listening to Alexa's story how do you support and your organization address some of these uh, pretty challenging moments of an, a diagnosis and then a treatment plan? Thank you very much. I believe uh, with our organization, we're able to treat a whole country, not just at a cancer center. So that is an advantage that we have uh, expanded reach. But people still have to reach us, right? They have to call in and... Um, what we find with people that don't have enough resources or they don't have a care team that is supporting them, they're searching. They're out there on the internet. They're looking at Dr. Google. They're, they're trying to find answers, trying to find support. And then they find advocacy organizations on the internet or by marketing or things like that. And then what the Alliance does in regards to patient navigation is we start from wherever they're at Right. They call us with a concern. They call us with a they're confused about their treatment, their diagnosis. They don't know where to go. And so we try to gather as much information as we can or help and then help empower them with the right information, evidence based practice information, but also talk to them about how to navigate to the care that they need and deserve and that is by um, talking to them about their experience, their resources. But if they haven't gotten something that they need, such as biomarker testing, such as a physician talking about a clinical trial that might be appropriate for them, we talk about those things. We talk about second opinions. So you open their mind to, uh, once they sort of adjust a bit to the diagnosis, what, what resources are out there. Second opinions we talked about earlier today, are critical when questions and under and being educated about basic facts about the disease, biomarkers, what stage means, what's the difference between chemotherapy and other approaches, where when is surgery used, when is it not, when is radiation? So it's a huge service uh, to the community, and, it's, and it sounds and you're a, you're really a national organization. We are right? a national nonprofit that um, serves the whole country. The the navigators that are actually on our team are certified patient navigators as well. So they're professional navigators, informed and educated in how to help support people as they go tr through treatment. We also do screening navigation to help prevent cancer um, and also advocate on a legislative level to help um, bring new treatments and help, as Alexa said, to reduce the age down for screening and, and really get to reach more people. Great. Yeah. So Andrew, um you, I'm curious what brought you to uh, to this uh, 
profession and the job you're currently in. You're, yeah. you're, yeah. Tell us a little bit about it. So I came from a pretty, or I come from a family that's pretty medically heavy um, in terms of background for professions. Um, and so when I went to school for public relations and design, I thought, you know, I, I don't want to do anything with, um, with medicine, but life has its way. Um, and I did some internships and quickly found out that, you know, entertainment PR is not all it's cracked up to be. So, um, you know, really fell in love with the impact of nonprofit work. Um, and the healthcare space, um, is special. People are, um, resilient and relentless in this space, like none other. Um, and so to be able to work at an org that prioritizes, um, policy change for large scale change for the masses of people um, was really cool to see to watch people come in and turn their pain into purpose and then um, you know be able to take that down the road and and be stronger because of it great well yeah. we're glad you're here yeah, with the Colorado community thank you so this gives me a little chance to pivot and really talk let's get to immunotherapy and I, I'm fascinated to see we've got representation from advocacy and patient you know, uh, as part of the melanoma revolution with my colleagues, where we had a similar situation to refractory, you know, very advanced colorectal cancer, where once you traditional therapies don't work, there's very little to offer patients. That was where we were in melanoma, where chemo never worked at all. And, um, and yet, in the last 10 years in melanoma, we've gone from a, a, a very a six-month average survival to now where more than half of patients with advanced melanoma are being cured with the combination of these immunotherapy drugs. So, so I really see that. And obviously, Agenis is, is really focused on this 70% of these cold and poorly immunogenic tumors that didn't succeed with the first revolution, but some of our products and others are really uh, starting to address this. And colorectal is our first disease because our data is showing very promising activity with long-term durable responses, which is what I started to see in the early melanoma days. So, but immunotherapy is very different than, than chemotherapy. Side effects with immunotherapy um, are generally associated with T-cell activation, which is a good thing because it is, is associated with eradication of the tumor. So the patient's very much in the battle with their treatment as opposed to sort of considering it more the lesser of an evil, a poison that is going to help them, but it's certainly not to be desired if at all possible. So just the opposite with immunotherapy, where actually what you're doing is not concentrating on the cancer, but actually activating the immune cells to do the heavy lifting. And then, because they're much better at eradicating a cancer. Um, so, um, but there's a lot of lessons learned in terms of how patients uh, participate in their treatment, how they have to report side effects carefully because they have to be managed very quickly and effectively, um, how they need to continue treatment even when there's early signs that tumors are growing in the very short term because eventually the tumors with a little more time will start shrinking. So there's a lot of different ways. But tell us a little bit about how the colorectal community uh, thinks or hasn't yet had a chance to think about immunotherapy. We know that there's a subtype, very small subtype of 5 to 10% of colon cancer with MS high biomarker that, that do respond very well to immunotherapy. But the vast majority, 90 to 95% of these cancers have not really succeeded. So open it up to anybody. 
I mean, I think generally there's hope, right? Um, you know, we've seen good response in that in that subpopulation, um, and I think there's hope for the other, you know, ninety to ninety five percent that they'll get um, something along those lines that's life saving and life changing in terms of treatment options, because um, it's been limited for so long. I could <laughs> that community's hungry; they're ready for another treatment option. So, if it's something, I mean, especially that with lesser toxicity in terms of side effects and things like that i think people would be all over it <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so they're hopeful yeah marianne you said it so perfectly <laughs> i don't know how i could follow that i mean you're really going back to instilling hope by creating this and having more options for people and for there to be such um the the current data looking so good you know that it just instills hope and people are interested they want to hear it they're they're eager they're waiting every day our cancer patients and families are waiting for something new innovative that is going to um, increase their life or change their life or save their life so with most solid tumors where chemotherapy has been the mainstay there has been modest benefit that that can extend survival by a few months but but the chance of long-term survival or cures in advanced solid tumors has been very, very low. The curves, as we say, tend to go to zero in diagonal curves. What's been unique about immunotherapy is not that it works for everyone, because even in melanoma, there's groups of patients, a fairly large number, who don't benefit, and we have to try other options. But the ones who do benefit Unlike chemotherapy, where it sort of moves the curve a little bit, um, uh, there are these plateaus in the shape of the curve where there actually is long-term flat survival. And it's my impression that patients, if they're told they have a one in four chance of being cured, uh, it's still a big number when you're thinking you might benefit but no cure. Can, let's talk, Alexa, as a patient. Yeah. Uh, the statistics are not great for yeah. survival right now. So especially speaking from someone from the MSS, like colon cancer cohort, we are all very, you know, excited about all of this um, to increase survival, chance at life. Improve quality yeah. with lack of side effects yeah. Yeah. or severe side effects, because I think that also happens with extension of life or, um, you know, like you're talking about, some chemotherapies will give a, a little bit of time. A lot of people want that little bit of time, but what it, what cost does it come at? So to have um, options with low side effects, yeah. low um, to improve quality of life so is the huge. pattern of treatment generally with chemotherapy or what we call cytotoxics is in the advanced setting, you have to continue them right. for long periods of time. And side effects uh, come and go, but there are some that become irreversible, like neuropathy right. and other side effects with some of the drugs. Right. Uh, immunotherapy certainly has side effects. They can be abrupt in onset and they can be quite severe, but they're easily manageable in general with the steroids or other forms of suppressing the immune system. So the difference is they they almost always are self-limited. And then if you don't have to continue long-term treatment, uh, you have this gap of time where you're alive, doing well, and potentially cured without active symptoms that have reversed. So it is a very different psychology, but um, but I think people are willing to sort of become partners in the treatment, knowing the side effects can be viewed 
a little bit is good, not too much is good. Um, I think that in terms of toxicity, like we need to be mindful of of all of the areas that EAO patients, people under 50 are facing. So we talked a little bit this morning about um, the mental health aspect of a cancer diagnosis, but there's also um, financial toxicity, career toxicity, changes in education, um, sexual health and fertility. I mean, the the EAO patient population under 50 faces a really unique set of challenges. So if we can lessen those, like even just a little bit for that population would be a huge win um, to be able to get back to life quicker, to get back to life after treatment. Um, so I mean, to have to have a new treatment option is, is great. Um, and I think we'll save a lot of people's lives. Um, but there's life after treatment that we also have to think about um, and making sure that long-term quality of life is is solid as well. And and I think the the field of immunotherapy and melanoma is sort of front and center, but it's moving to other diseases now where, where we have effective treatment is to move from very advanced cancer to early stages, brief mm-hmm. exposures of immunotherapy before surgery uh, when the tumor's intact but hasn't spread uh, to prevent it from spreading. And it turns out having a tumor intact in your body when you get the immunotherapy at the very early stage is very effective at helping serve to stimulate your body's immune system. So I think in melanoma now, we're looking to use immunotherapy and are actively using it even before surgery, uh, where the tumor has is maybe advanced or have lymph nodes, but hasn't distantly spread. And we have data now starting to evolve in MS-stable colorectal cancer before surgery, too. So, Alexa, to your point, I mean, early diagnosis for all cancers is important. Lung cancer is another example where immunotherapy is being used before surgery. Um, but obviously, if it works in a very advanced disease, the earlier you use it when someone's healthier and not as sick from their cancer, the better. Um, so we're, we're working on that, and, and, and there will be clinical trials in colorectal cancer now, not just in MS high, uh, but in MS stable even before surgery. So yeah, look for So let's talk about clinical trials. Yeah, you know, we'll three to four percent of the population uh, in the U.S. Uh, really participates in clinical trials, and most of the times it's at the very end of the options as opposed to early on. Um, but um, you know, uh, will you be looking for immunotherapy trials in the colorectal community? And and yes. does your the past <laughs> um, uh, lack of success uh, does that uh, make you feel less optimistic or not? No. I don't think so. I mean, I think there might be a moment at the beginning where people are you know needing some education and maybe thinking like, "This deja vu." Like we've <laughs> we've seen this before, right? But um, I think this community is so ready and. Um, hungry for new treatment options, um, and they're smart. So, if we if we put some education out around immunotherapy and what the, you know, what we learned, where we went wrong, um, people are ready. People are ready for new treatment options. So, I think the lessons of the first revolution is certain tumor types have are very visible to the immune system. Um, melanoma is one. The skin cancers, because of the ultraviolet radiation, causes a lot of mutations. So, think of it as fingerprints on the cancer cell that look very different than what should be there. So the immune says, yeah, this is not good and and eradicates it. Other uh, tumors like lung cancer where smoking uh, and environmental exposures create these very um, 
cancers that look very different than normal cells. So that's been the first revolution. The problem with uh, MS-stable colorectal and other colder tumors, which populates the majority of cancer, about 70%, is that the tumor cells look a little too like the normal cells. So the immune system has a hard time distinguishing. So the real efforts of companies like Agenis and many other companies now looking at this is how do we make these cold tumors that hide their fingerprints on their surface so they, they, they evade the immune? How can we make them more visible? And there's many different ways of doing that, uh, directing uh, cytotoxic drugs to the tumor, combining it with these immune tr therapies. Vaccines now are back in the mRNA vaccines, the same technology that helped develop the COVID vaccines are being used in cancer now. And we're, there's a melanoma trial now that's looking very exciting in conjunction with a cancer vaccine in conjunction with um, an, an immune drug. And, and companies like ours are gonna have uh, lots of new clinical trials in these cold tumors. So, so we really wanna inform the community that, um, that we should take the first weight revolution as a great accomplishment, Absolutely. but much work to be done and not feel that we are not gonna be able to address these 70%, but it will take clinical trials and really participation. And participation in my mind is education. Um, and we talked a little, uh, Marianne, I think you talked maybe this morning, why should patients go on clinical trials? Do they do better or worse? Or um, in addition to, to advancing knowledge in cancer and potentially helping themselves? I think once patients understand what a clinical trial is and the care that they're going to get, um, the close monitoring, the close, the, the close testing, the physicians, the care, the care team um, by going on a clinical trial, but also affecting the rest of the patients out there that potentially are going to get colorectal cancer as well, they can impact their community. They are on board. They just need to understand what it is and put it in layman's terms and people terms. Um, and then they they light up. They think, oh, that might be for me. How do I get that? So then they we try to advocate and empower them to go back to their doctors to talk about clinical trials, look to see if it's if their tumor or their situation is a is a fit for this clinical trial. But and in, and in yeah. cancer, we almost never, rarely do placebo controlled trials. Right. So what I always told my patients is generally the trials are you're building on whatever the standard is. Sure. And so at at a minimum, you would get the standard, and then if it's a randomized trial you would then potentially be eligible for something that has better promise. And I also found that they patients want to not only help themselves, but they have this tremendous altruistic very motive to, to moving the field and helping others. I found that very powerful. I do think there's still that old lingering um, thought that they are not going to get standard of care. Mm -hmm. And so that really needs to be debunked. Yeah. And really made clear. And I, again, going back to their care team and talking about it, is they need to just know they are getting standard. Yeah. I think placebo the, became yeah. synonymous with nothing. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like I'm getting a sugar just, pill. Yeah. Um, and and it, just it's test, nothing. But that's, yeah. Not, yeah. that's not the case. No, it's, no. it's about how it's explained yeah. honestly and Absolutely. in language people can understand right. and how the design of the trial 
they will get a minimum of the best, you know, mm-hmm. best standard that's available. We would yeah. never subject patients to less than that. Yeah, and it's like partnering with our organizations, teaching us to teach others yeah. and inform others, and that is critical. We're getting critical information out to the whole country by partnering with different um, organizations like this. Great. Yeah. So any other final comments? And then I want to have a few uh, closing statements. But um, it's just, first of all, thank you for being at Agenis today. Uh, this is a patient day for us in which we are really exciting the people who work for this company on all levels, science, clinical, administrative, uh, that, that really what they're doing matters. They're, they're passionate about designing new drugs, about us allowing patients to potentially benefit to moving these drugs to uh, approval and getting them to patients if if they work. And so that's really our mission today. But to hear a patient's story, it brings us so front and center to that that patients are waiting, which is a motto at Agenis. And uh, and we need to to work hard, work smart, and never give up. And that's what we're doing here. So thank you for being here and participating in this podcast. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Alexa, Andrew, and Marianne, I've enjoyed this conversation very much, and I'm sure our listeners have learned a great deal as well. At the end of the first episode, I invited feedback from our audience. The good news is it was very positive. And to demonstrate that I'm taking the feedback seriously, I used a much better microphone today. Yes, (laughs) some of you pointed out that I sounded like I was across the room last time. We live and learn in the world of podcasts, as in the field of immuno-oncology. Keep the feedback coming, and please check back again. If you go to my profile on LinkedIn and click to follow me, you'll always know when there's a new episode, as we illuminate the potential of immunotherapies and follow the curve to better outcomes against cancer.